I want you to think back a couple songs. Um, you were all singing it, I believe. Lord, have your way in me. Let's proclaim that right now. Lord, have your way in me. Speak it out loud, people, like you mean it. Lord, have your way in me. That's why we gather here on Sundays, right? And the key, we're going to be talking about keys a little bit today. One of the keys to Lord, having your way in me was the next song that the band went into. Who knows what that song was? Lord, have your way in me. I surrender. Pretty simple, isn't it? But good morning to you all. Everybody can have a seat. I won't make you stand the entire time. Do you know in the Old Testament there's quite a few places where it said that they stood and heard the word of the Lord for hours? That's the reverence they had for the word of God. Now that the kids are all out of the room, what's two weeks from today? Anybody know? A lot of anticipation for it, right? Anybody excited about it? All right, good. A lot of work going into it, right? Everybody have their trees up, decorations. I mean, we drive by some houses, and you know they put hours and hours and probably hours of work preparing their house with decorations to celebrate the birth of our Savior, right? Should we celebrate it? Okay, a little hesitation there. I'm not trying to trick you. Is It's the greatest gift ever given, right? The birth of Jesus Christ, the gift from God, the gift from our Heavenly Father, the greatest gift that's ever been given. So we should celebrate it. We should remember it. But the question I'm going to ask is, how much time do you spend decorating for Christmas as opposed to how much time do you spend inviting the Savior into your heart? change you, to cleanse you. Last week I was talking about enduring to the end and one of you asked if the message today was a continuation of that and I actually said no at the beginning of it but then when I thought about it, it actually is. That for us to endure to the end, my message is actually going to tie into that very intimately, very closely. That the way that we can endure to the end is to make sure that we surrender. That the Lord has his way in us. Um, Tuesday morning, God woke me up again. It was dark. I have no idea what time it was. I mean, to say it's dark is a little bit of a, you know, redundant statement in this time frame, right? And as I'm laying there, um, I hear, let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. I am not going to try and sing it. I can't carry a tune. But you all know what I'm singing, right? That's all I heard was let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. That's all I could hear. And I grabbed my flashlight, grabbed my notepad here and my pen and woke my wife up at some point. said, what are you doing? <laughs> Scribbling down two and a half pages of notes is what I was doing as God was talking to me. Tuesday morning when the light came on and, you know, the sun, 
And I got here to church and I started doing a little bit. And I searched heaven. I, that's the only thing I could hear was heaven and nature sing. And so I searched that as a song title. And there's actually songs that come up as heaven and nature sing. And so I started playing the one and it didn't sound right. The whole entire first verse was a um, different song, if you will, or verses. And then it went into the familiar song. Everybody know what song I'm talking about? What is it? Joy to the world. All right, so I wasn't the only one lost on that. Anyhow, God used that just to prompt me to bring the message that we're bringing here today. Um, The title of my message is Prepare Him Room. Let every heart prepare him room. Um, Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, please. Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to read and. If you can, imagine me speaking like Linus. Some of you of the right age you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're gonna, you already hear Linus talking, don't you? Charles Schultz was not ashamed to put the gospel in his Peanuts shows. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And verse 7, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Familiar passage. There was no room for them in the end. And what I want you to do is I want you to maybe get rid of some of the thoughts and images that you have that they were stopping at the Holiday Inn. When it says there was no room for them at the end, it wasn't a hotel. Back in this time when we're talking about um, in Jesus' time frame, is an inn was basically if any one of you opened up your house and said there's space on the floor, Give me some money, you can sleep there. We'll get you some food. So when they said there's no room in the inn, he was saying there was no space left on the floor for you and a pregnant woman. And so have to imagine some things, and there's a lot of movies, a lot of shows out there that do a lot of imagining what happened at this point. And my version of it is the innkeeper's wife had compassion on this pregnant family and said, well, we've at least got room out in the manger, out in the stable, right? And so I'm, I think it was the wife that helped out this family. Yeah. I'm not getting any disagreement from you ladies, right? It was that compassionate woman. And so bring up that first slide, if you would. First picture. And familiar picture, familiar scene. You know, there's Joseph Mary on the donkey. Innkeeper saying, nope. Go away. There's no room. There's no space left on my floor. No room for you. And so we know the rest of the story, that they go and find a place in the um, stable. And take that image out of your mind, too. It wasn't a barn. Again, sorry, AJ and your kids. But it was probably a cave. It was probably, if you go to Bethlehem today, they still have the sheep caves 
that they still keep the sheep in to this day because it was easier to block one entrance to a cave and keep the sheep in there than it was you know, just leaving them out in the open. And I had the privilege, my one son and I were able to go to Israel a few years back and go into one of these caves that they said could have been one of the caves that Jesus was born in. And so when you get that image that he was where they kept the, the sheep, where they kept the, you know, the donkeys, is that's where he was wrapped in swaddling clothes because there was no room, there was no space left on the floor inside the building, inside the house for the inn. And so that, um, bring up that next slide, the crowded, I call it the Katrina gym. Okay. This is a little bigger than the inn was probably in Bethlehem, but this is the idea I want you to get is this is actually a picture from, I think it was the Superdome down, or the Astrodome in Houston, is the Katrina evacuees came there to be housed, and there's still space on that floor, right? Okay, they could have fit a few more people in there. But that's the image I want you to have of the inn when the innkeeper said, we don't have any more room, is it's crowded. There's people all over the place. So that's the image I want you to keep in mind as we go through this. And just to change the thought a little bit is if the innkeeper had truly understood who was standing at his door knocking, that the savior of the world, the Messiah, the king of kings, was there about to be birthed into the world, do you think he would have made room? I think he would have cleared the place out. He would have said, everybody else, get out. The king of kings is here ready to be born, and he needs a place more worthy than a stable to be born in. Again, supposition on my part. with whatever you want to in that picture. Is your life, is your room, your inn so full of stuff that there's no room for Jesus? Just think on that for a moment. And again, I can myself of this, some of the things I wrote down, um, sports, hobbies, Are there so many things going on in your life that there's no time, there's no space for Jesus to come in and find a place to recline, to be part of your life? So I want to change it again. Bring up that next picture, please. And you don't have to turn to it if you don't want to, but Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. This is, again, a very familiar picture. Everybody in here seen this picture? Okay, again, maybe my generation and older. Some of you young people may not have seen it. But in Revelation 3.20, it says, Jesus speaking, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with you. I will sup with you. So just keep that picture up. Just leave it up there. Is that Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. And if we hear his voice and open the door, he will come in and sup with us. So again, back to our lives our in, if you will, is our life so hectic 
Is it too crowded? Is it too noisy that you can't hear him standing at the door and knocking? Is your schedule too busy that you don't have room for him? So in preparing him room, I'm going to use some scriptures to demonstrate how we can prepare the room, how we need to reevaluate. That's a word that we've been hearing, reevaluation, is we need to reevaluate what we're doing with our lives, the lives that he gave us. Our life is a gift from God. And so we need to evaluate how we can prepare him more room. What do we do with our time? What do we do with the things that he's given us? What do we, who do we surround ourselves with even? Is we need to evaluate those things based on a higher purpose. And the purpose is, does the activity that I'm doing bring me closer to God? Do my friends influence me to be a follower of Christ or more like the world? How do I use my money? Do I use it to glorify God or do I use it to glorify my flesh? And even as we were driving here this morning, is how many of you have ever been told, act like a Christian? Anybody ever been told that? Okay. Act like a grown-up. Sure, some of you have been told that one, right? And I said, I, I don't like that. Because when you watch a movie and you see an actor, are that, is that the real person? No. So if to act like a Christian, is that saying you're really a Christian? I think the way we need to say it is be a Christian. Yeah. Don't act like one, but be a Christian. And the only way to do that is to constantly be surrounding yourself with others that are going to prod you, provoke you to good works, that are going to challenge you to know Jesus even more intimately than you do now. So turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read that to you right now. And Jesus entered into Capernaum, and it was noised that he was in the house. It was reported that he was in a house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. So here we have the opposite thing. The first time Jesus came to a house, there was no room for him. This case, in Mark, there's no room for anybody else to come into the house because Jesus was there. There wasn't even room about the door, and he preached the word unto him. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come near him for the press of people, they uncovered the roof where he was, and, they, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins be forgiven you. What kind of friends did this guy have? What kind of friends do you have? So when you think about that question, we're talking about evaluating who you allow in your life, who you hang out with, who you spend time with. There were so many people gathered around Jesus at that time. There was no more room for anybody else to come in. And can you imagine, again, the friends that were willing to take their friend who was sick of the palsy, couldn't move, paralyzed, put him on a litter or a stretcher, and the four of them carried him however far to get to where Jesus was. And they get there, and there's no room for them to get near Jesus. So do you have the kind of friends that would just give up? Well, we tried. Take him back to a spot and drop him off. 
Or do you have the kind of friends that are going to say, we're going to do whatever it takes to get you in the presence of Jesus? And, you know, as I'm preparing the message and I'm thinking about it, what was the guy sick of the palsy thinking about when they started walking up the stairs to the roof? Or is that their plan? To put me out of my misery, to put them out of their misery of taking care of me. I'm going to, you know, that's obviously not in the Bible. But the things that I think about sometimes is they get them up there, they lay them down, and they start destroying the roof. I mean, if somebody starts digging through our roof here, you're going to know about it pretty quickly. There's going to be debris falling down on you. And Jesus stayed there and preached. And they got the hole opened, and they lowered their friend down in front of Jesus, it says. And Jesus saw their faith and healed the man. What do you think that man felt about his friends after that? Did it increase his appreciation for having that kind of friends in his life? That they would go to extreme measures? They would destroy your house to get you into the presence of Jesus? What kind of friend are you? Again, I'm convicting myself here. Is are we the kind of friends that will go to extreme measures to take our friends and get them in the presence of Jesus no matter what their condition is? Are we that kind of friends? As Christians not acting like Christians, but being Christians, we should be the type of friends that are willing to sacrifice, to go to extremes to save people, to change their lives, to get them in front of Jesus. Don't be distracted by the screen. So sometimes preparing him room, preparing Jesus room to have more access to us requires tearing things apart. Breaking routines. What in your life maybe do you need to tear apart? What roof, what kind of building have you constructed around yourself that maybe needs being torn down to give Jesus more access to you? You know, we talk about walls that we build, you know, protective mechanisms of our psyche is that we'll put walls of defense up to protect our emotions, to protect ourselves from the abuses that have been heaped on us before. Well, sometimes we need to tear those down so Jesus can get access and bring restoration and healing in there. Preparing him room doesn't mean you already have a perfect life. And I've asked that question many times. Does anybody in here have a perfect life? None of us do. We still have work that Christ wants to do inside of us. But that doesn't mean we don't have issues. You may live a good life. You don't have any of the big sins. You're not a murderer. You're not a child molester. But in the song, it says, let every heart, not just those that think they need him, but let every heart prepare him room, right? So who's included in that? Anybody excluded? Or are we all included in preparing him room? We need to prepare him room. So turn to Mark chapter 5, just a couple pages to your right. And this is going to be an obvious one, that this man needs to make room for Jesus. Mark chapter 5, again, verses 1 through 5. 
And Jesus and the disciples came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had often been bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. This guy need to have an encounter with Jesus? Pretty obvious, isn't it? But I want you to, again, think about more than just the words that are written down there. Is He was possessed by demons, right? How many? Say, so if you ever checked into what a legion was, a Roman legion usually consisted of about 6,000 men. I mean, the numbers differ. I've seen three to 6,000, but it's a lot. A Roman legion was a powerful unit. So this man, you know, when Jesus questioned him, the demon answered, we are a legion. There was a lot of demons in this situation. And are demons smart? Yeah. Okay. They're intelligent, cunning. They're also deceptive, right? Yeah. What demon, if you will, in its right mind would go and confront Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Would a demon willingly go and confront Jesus? Okay. So follow me as I put my argument out there. Is I don't think that would ever happen, that a demon would purposely run to Jesus. But if you read in verse 6, but when he saw Jesus far off, he ran and worshipped him. If anybody wants to study this deeper, come and present your argument to me. But what I see here is this man's desperation was so strong that it overcame the influence of a legion of demons to get himself in the presence of Jesus. And when he carried the demons in front of Jesus, they had no choice but to speak because Jesus commanded them. What is it that you're not wanting to confront Jesus with? What is it in you that doesn't want or doesn't have that desperation to no matter what is clinging to you. We talked about the sins that so easily beset us last week. What is it that's clinging to you or that's part of your life that you don't want Jesus to see? Or are you willing to overcome it all that your will will say, I need to be at the feet of Jesus no matter what else is dragging along behind me and lay it down at his feet? This encounter was something that Jesus obviously was ordained to do because he only did what, he what the Father told him to do. So his arrival at that place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the you know, village of the Gadarenes was for this man's deliverance. In verse 15, it says that after the, excuse me, in verse 7, it says that the demon actually adjured or implored or begged Jesus to not torment them. And the 
reading that we have as we look at this passage in Mark is that this may have been a Gentile man. Because were Jews allowed to eat pork? What was near this man? Herd of swine. And that's where Jesus, when he cast the legion out of these men, is they went into the herd of swine. And so the village of, the, of Gadarene is on the east side of the Jordan, and it was lightly populated with Jews, with the Hebrews. So the speculation is that this man may have been a Gentile, and Jesus still ministered to him. But what we see is the man said, I want to go with you, Jesus. When Jesus came to deliver this man, and what did he do after that? Got back in the boat and was going to head the other way again. He came for this man, for one person. And the man said, you've delivered me. Please, can I go with you? And Jesus told him, nope, go back to your, your town and tell them what's been done for you by your Lord. And so the man probably reluctantly did, but went back, and then we don't hear much about that story for a little while. But he was from a region called Decapolis. What does that mean, all you scholars? Anybody? Ten cities. Decapolis is a region on the eastern shore of the Jordan River that was the ten cities. And the prominence of that is that this man did not go with Jesus. He went back and went to the ten cities and preached the gospel, preached deliverance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you fast forward many years is when Christ is crucified. He's been resurrected, ascended to heaven. Is What started after that is persecution of the church, right? And one of the main characters that we see in that is Saul, is persecuting the church, right? And so as he persecuted the Christians, the believers in Jerusalem, they dispersed. Do you know where they went? Decapolis. Because they knew that there were brothers and sisters in Christ that would take care of them in Decapolis. Because of one man's encounter with God, Decapolis became a place of sanctuary for the Christians fleeing Jerusalem to go. And that's why when you read in the book of Acts that Saul was on his way where? Damascus, Damascus which was one of the cities of the Decapolis. He was going there to bring back the Christians from Damascus to persecute them in Ju Jerusalem. So one man's encounter changes the lives of many people. Are you that person? So preparing him room is an obvious thing if you have demonic influences. And I'm going to ask you to even think back to some of your childhoods. Is what did you allow into your life? Did you have Ouija boards? Seances? Watch satanic movies? Hopefully all of us can say no. But if you can't, you need to run to Jesus. Ask that influence to be cut off from your life, to be cast out, so that that influence no longer has an opportunity to come into your life. It's an opening in your armor. So as Jesus' blood cleanses of our sins and our addictions, demonic influences, it becomes part of our testimony. But it also makes more room for his presence to be in us. And so each one of us individually, because it is a personal gospel, 
but it's also a corporate gospel that every single one of us as part of his body, praise fellowship, the church worldwide, is in his name we have to be a place for the persecuted, the sick, demon-possessed and oppressed, that the lost can come and find a sanctuary from attacks and abuse. So when people walk through those doors out there, what are we presenting to them? As Christ's representatives, as people come through those doors out there, they're hoping to find him, right? Why else do people come to church? Just because it's something to do on Sunday morning? Okay, it shouldn't be. It needs to be a place where people can come and be welcomed, where they can get a hug, that somebody's willing to talk to them. That's all of you. All of you have that purpose for being here, is so that when those that are lost, sick, persecuted, life is in turmoil, that there needs to be somebody here that's willing to put out a hand to them, put out a hug to them. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be like Jesus? Or do we want to just act like Jesus? Is God's love extreme? It knows no bounds, does it? I mean, we're here, we're preparing to celebrate Jesus' birth, but behind me all the time is that thing right there. Okay? That's how extreme God's love was. Is he said, I'm going to give you my son, and think of Jesus as that little baby. He was a normal baby. He would fit right in here like all five of my children did. But yet his purpose for being born as this little baby, this perfect, innocent little baby, was to someday to end up on that thing. To be tortured, brutalized, and killed because God's love for you is extreme. Each one of you individually, God's love is for you and you only. So are you willing to say, here I am, Lord. Use me. Preparing him room can literally mean that, is you have to look at your life. How many hours do each one of you get today? Again, we're all allotted 24 hours in our day, 365 days in the year, right? Is your schedule so busy, other than Sunday morning, that there's no room for Jesus to speak into your life? How many of you have little iPhones that have your calendar on them and you schedule everything in there? How many of you maybe need to take a 10-minute block and schedule a meeting with Jesus in it? Your day planner. Because your day is so hectic. You're so busy living life that, well, maybe at the end of the day, I'll spend some time in the Word. I'll spend some time with Jesus. And by the end of the day, you're so beat, so exhausted, that you fall right asleep. Do you need to take your day planner and schedule a meeting with Jesus? Sometimes it's something that, I mean, that may not sound drastic, but how many of you would that benefit? To just say, 11.10 to 11.30 tomorrow, I'm going to spend some time with Jesus. I'm going to spend time in his word. 
you may need to dedicate, I mean, we've got a dedicated prayer room right over there. That that's the purpose of that room over there is for prayer. I mean, we use it for other things. But it's a prayer room. Um, movie came out a number of years ago. I think it was called War Room. Okay. What was the war room? Was it a, it was a closet, wasn't it? Okay. Something as simple as that, that you dedicate one place in your house. That when you enter that place, it's dedicated to your meeting with Jesus the Holy Spirit to teach you. It can be a closet, it can be a chair. Um, how many of you know who Susanna Wesley is? Ever heard that name? Okay, more people have probably heard of John Wesley. Charles Wesley, I think it is. Charles Wesley wrote hundreds of hymns. John Wesley was a you know, famous preacher. Susanna Wesley was their mother and those of you that know who Susanna Wesley, how many children did she have? Eight? Eighteen, okay. I was, it was a lot. She had lots of children, okay? Can you imagine her house and her trying to get time with Jesus? We're going to give her 18 kids. She may not have had that many, but we're giving her 18 kids. That is a house of chaos. But Susanna Wesley trained her children. And she said that when she sat down in this certain chair, she would take her shawl and bring it up over top of her, and she would make her own prayer closet. And her children knew that when mom was in the shawl, leave her alone. She's spending time with God. And look what it did with at least two of her children. It impacted their lives where they influenced England and the United States to a huge degree because this woman dedicated part of her day and her children were to see it every single day. Mom's in the prayer closet. Second Kings chapter four. This is a story of Elisha in the Old Testament. And the Shunammite woman, she recognized that Elisha was a man of God, and she literally built him a room on top of her house so that when this man of God came by, he would have a place to get some rest, to get some alone time, spend time with the Lord. And Susanna Wesley is an example of that, is that she didn't build a house or didn't build a room on her house. She probably could have used one with that many children but she made a way to say, I'm spending time with the Savior. That's what this woman did in the book of Kings is she dedicated a room and said, this is a place for the man of God to have when he's in the area. It is If you set aside that 10-minute block of your day, you're building a room that's saying, Jesus, you're welcome here. When I'm here, you're welcome here. Making that time for him. So preparing him room, AJ, come on up. I'm going to close shortly here. Um, AJ is going to play some keys, and you're going to recognize, hopefully, the song that he's playing. To prepare him room, let every heart prepare him room. I'm going to leave you with five keys to preparing him room. The first key is be listening for his knock. 
the word says it will know his voice. In John chapter 10, verse 27, it says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So do you know Jesus' voice? And if you could bring that picture back up of Jesus standing at the door knocking. And the words that the Holy Spirit inspired John to use when he wrote the book of Revelation is a key. It says, Jesus stands at the door. Does he barge into your house? He's standing there. Is he standing there just waiting for you to come out sometime? He's standing at the door and it says he knocks. He's trying to get your attention. And it says that if you hear his voice, so I think he not only knocks, but he calls out our names. Because it says if we hear his voice, we recognize it. We need to unclutter our mind. How many of you have cluttered minds? That your house may be spotless. Everything's in order. You don't have a Katrina gym look setting where there's things spread out all over the place. My grandmother was a collector, hoarder, if you will. She literally had aisles that you had to walk through her house in because she had so much stuff piled up all over. There was no room for any guests almost. But you may have a spotless house, but how's your mind? And that one picture you saw, or I saw it flash up there momentarily, is it was showing a cluttered mind. And all the different things that are occupying your time, you've got anxiety, you've got tasks, you're controlling things, you're trying to you know, experience things, um, your schedule, all those different things that are going on in there. How do you deal with a cluttered mind? How do you prepare him room in your mind? Philippians 4.8. It tells us to think on these things. And what are those things that we're supposed to think of? The things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, things of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. Think on those things. So if your mind is occupied with thinking on Philippians 4.8, how much of that's going to be gone? How much clutter from your mind is going to be gone if you think on the things of Christ? So be listening for his knock. The second key is evaluate how you spend your time. Evaluate how you spend your money. You know, if you ever listen to any financial teachings, one of the things that they can tell you is, or they say pretty commonly, is give me your checkbook and I'm going to see where your heart's at. What you do with your money is an indication of where your heart's at. So evaluate your time, how you spend your time, and evaluate how you spend your money. The third key is evaluate your friends. That sounds like a fun one, doesn't it? When you spend time with other people, are they influencing you to be more like Christ? Or are they influencing you to be more worldly or to fall back into the old patterns that you may have had before you came to Christ? When you spend time with the lost, and again, that's something I want to make clear. I'm not saying we should cut anybody that's not a Christian out of our life. Because what kind of witness do we have if we only 
hang out with Christians. We're not called to just be around Christians. We're called to be around each other, to build each other up, to help edify each other. But we're also told to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, right? But the key with that is, is when you're around those that are lost, those that are hurting, even immature Christians, are you influencing them to be more like Christ? Or are they influencing you to return to your heathen ways? So evaluate your friends and how you spend time with them and what you do with the time you do spend with them. Fourth key is remind yourself constantly is that we're in a spiritual battle. What we're seeing and experiencing with our senses in this body isn't the whole thing, is it? Our enemy's intelligent and he's deceptive, but what's his goal? Is it his goal to just make you confused or upset you? His goal is to destroy you, to kill you, to steal your life. So being annoyed and confused isn't great, but his ultimate goal is to destroy you. So we need to constantly remind ourselves of that, is that when you're convicted of sin, repent of it. Don't think about it. Don't meditate on it. Repent of it. If you need to forgive somebody, when do you do it? Quickly. Repent quickly, forgive quickly. And it's only in him that we have the authority, only in Jesus that we have the authority to silence and cast out demons. <clears throat> and are they a real problem? Yes, they are. So key number four was to remind ourselves constantly that we're in a spiritual battle and that we need to be putting on the armor of God every single day. The fifth key and probably an obvious one is if we go back to key number one, which was Jesus stands at the door and knocks. We need to hear him, right? But hearing him is not enough. What does it say in Revelation 3.20? He stands at the door and he knocks, and he doesn't just stand there hoping that you'll come out the door one day. He doesn't just come barging in and saying, hey, what's going on in here? We need to have a time together. He calls you by name, and if you hear his voice, and this is the key, you have to open the door. And put that picture back up there again of Jesus standing at the door knocking. Is he standing there waiting? He's knocking. He's calling, but he doesn't do anything beyond that. He's waiting for you to do what? Get your butt up off the couch. Get away from the dishwasher, whatever it is you're doing, and go to the door and open it up and welcome him in. That's what he's waiting for. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian is he's waiting for you to open up the door one more time because there's more that he wants to do in you. There's more that he wants to do through you. And it's not just about the one-time experience of meeting with Christ. It's an ongoing day-after-day lifetime decision that I want to be more intimate with Christ, that I know him more than I did yesterday, that five years from now, if I can say I don't know Jesus any differently than I did today, I've missed it. I've missed blessings. I've missed his 
opportunity that he wants to take me and make me more in him than I could ever be apart from him. That's why he sent us the Holy Spirit. That's why he gives us the helper, the comforter, the teacher. So you have to open up the door. You have to be listening. You have to be preparing him room so that he can take you from where you are and use you in a way that you've never imagined, in a greater way. So as we prepare to celebrate his birth in two weeks, prepare him room in your heart and open up all of your life to his presence and his love. Are we all willing to do that? And again, I'm going to ask you to be bold. If you are willing to do that, Lord, have your way in me. I surrender. Is stand. Demonstrate your loves. Demonstrate your commitment to who Christ is and what he wants to do with you. And just stand. Can we sing those that verse? That verse. That verse. So Rick requested we sing Joy to the World today. I was hoping it wasn't the one that went, Joy to the fishes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bull, that's a bullfrog. Let's sing this again. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Let's sing, let every. Let every heart prepare him room. Heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you for the gift of Jesus as a, a baby being born in that manger, humbling himself to come and offer himself up as that living sacrifice, dying on the cross for our redemption, paving the way for the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us, to walk this out with us, that we're not doing this alone or in our own strength. Lord, we thank you. And that everyone gathered here today will truly prepare him room. Open up our hearts, open up our minds, so that when you knock, Lord, we hear and we open up the door. Say, Lord, come in and sup with us. As we walk out of this place, Lord, we take your blessing, we take your anointing, we take the hope that is only in you out into the world, that your name may be glorified and your kingdom populated and push back the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.